0: The New Testament reading is from the book of Acts chapter one. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language Hakel Dama, that is, Field of Blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms let his homestead become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his possession, I'm sorry, his, posi- his position of overseer. So one of the men, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in out among us. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us in his resurrection, to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on matthias and he was added to the eleven apostles this is the word of the lord thanks be to god hear the gospel of our lord jesus christ according to luke Glory to you, O Lord. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you summon us to come to you and you tell us that you'll give rest to all who are weary and burdened. You tell us to take your yoke upon us because it is easy and your burden is light. And I pray this morning that we would hear your voice of invitation, that we would perceive in your scriptures, your great love, and your invitation to follow you in the path of life. So we commit our time to you now and ask for you to bless it. And we ask that you would use this time to bring glory to yourself and to grow us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. So what is your life all about? It's kind of a big question but an important one, just sit with it, hold it. And as you think about what your life is all about, think about where you go for wisdom, or where do you go for direction, for the words of life, for some sort of input from someone who is wiser or more authoritative or more knowledgeable, someone who will be helpful to you along the way and help you to attain the good life Or to flourish, or however it is you think about it, where do you look for wisdom? We live in a culture where so often we have uh, taken on this dynamic of kind of optimization, right? Where we've become more and more efficient in developing healthy habits or successful ways of being in the world, whether you're talking about habits of successful people, or you're talking about apps that can help uh, make things more efficient, or you're talking about you know, the life hacks, or you're looking to sages who will teach you the ways. And maybe you're the type whose sage is like a Warren Buffett type, or maybe you're, maybe your sages are more like the Marie Kondo type, or maybe your sages are more of a Brene Brown type. I don't know. These are all fine people, all wise people who have much to teach any and all of us. But the places that you go for wisdom will tell you a lot about what you actually really do value and treasure about what you believe the good life is all about. We enlist sages in our own pursuit of the good life. And we have probably as many different ways of doing that as there are people in this room. But the invitation to follow Jesus as a disciple is an invitation to follow a different sage into a different way of life. And as we get into the text today, as we consider Jesus and the 12, we're going to consider the nature of discipleship. We're gonna think about what it means for us to follow Jesus. But to help us do that, we are going to also think first about what did it mean for them? We're gonna consider discipleship in the context of Jesus and his world. And this fits with our mixtape series that we've been doing this summer. So if you've been around this summer, you know, we're doing a series called uh, Bible Stories Mixtape, which if you're as old as I am, that word mixtape means something to you. It's a peculiar kind of art form that is also a kind of love language where to make someone a mixtape is an expression of sharing with another person something that is important, usually through the idiom of songs that you've selected, a list that you've curated, and you think you you need to listen to these songs in this order, right? Now our mixtape is a little bit less order specific, but what we've tried to do is pick greatest hits type stories from the Bible and put them together into a summer playlist, if you will. Now I'm updating my language, right? It's playlist. If you don't know what mixtape is, it's like a playlist that you can hold. but can't play because no one has a device anymore. Um, So we're putting these stories together in a kind of playlist and we're listening over again to these overly familiar stories, but we're doing it, giving these stories breathing room in their own context so that we might actually perceive in them something that we've previously missed, a freshness, a power, something about the truth of what God is telling us that our overfamiliarity with the stories might just blind us too. So we're going back through and today we get to the story of Jesus choosing and naming his 12 apostles. Now there's a larger group of disciples that are there with Jesus and from the larger group he's choosing these 12 to be apostles. That's what we just read. But that's basically the story we're considering. That's the story that we're going to sit with, give some breathing room to today and then hopefully pull toward our lives in a meaningful way as we think about our own selves and what it means to live as disciples of Jesus. So first, I just wanna get a sense of the story to get our bearings. So look at this, Luke six, right? We're here and we see Jesus, he spends the night in prayer to God in verse 12. And then after his night of prayer, when day comes, he calls his disciples, which is a larger group, and he chooses from among them 12, and you can read their names there. And then after he chooses the 12, then he begins to instruct the whole group in the way. And he goes into his longer sermon, that is this manifesto, if you will, of the kind of society that it is that Jesus has come to pull together around himself. So that's the text. And as we get into the text, we'll look at some of these individual characters and like, why is it interesting that they're all pulled together in this group of 12? But I also want us to think more broadly about what is discipleship in Jesus's day? Like, what does it mean to be a disciple of a rabbi? Because Jesus was a Jewish rabbi acting in a Jewish world. And so we need to actually think about what is that so that we can get into the headspace of this text. So a few thoughts Maybe more than a few thoughts. I just own it right there. How about that? Rabbi, Jesus is a rabbi. A rabbi is one who trains up disciples, right? So if you're, if you're a disciple, what's implied is that you are the follower of a rabbi. And, and the word rabbi just simply means like my teacher, right? Or my master. And so it's a, it's a term of respect in Jesus's day. It's, it'll, after Jesus, it becomes more formal as a like an actual like formal title designation. In Jesus's day, it's not quite so formal, but it's a term of respect for someone who taught the scriptures and who trained disciples. Um, David Bivin, who's uh, one author who comments on these things has, has uh, commented that teachers of Torah were some of the most respected or maybe even the most respected in Jewish society. And that the goal of every kid, if you were growing up in that society, the goal of every kid would be to become a sage recognized as a teacher of Torah if you could. And the competition to ascend to that status was rather fierce. Scripture was at the center of the rabbi's life. So in the, in the Jewish literature, in addition to what we would call Bible, right? The, um, what we would call the Old Testament or often the Hebrew Bible, those books. In addition to that, there were other other uh, books or works, revelations of God, so to speak, one was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was like the oral tradition that went alongside the written tradition of Torah, right? And in the Mishnah, you have this instruction to pour over scripture again and again. For everything contain, contained in it, look into it, grow old and gray over it and do not depart for it, from it. For there is no better pursuit for you than this. That's from another one of the Jewish holy writings that came around uh, just several years. um, Well, really in this, um, about a hundred years before the time of Jesus. So this is the attitude in Jesus's society of that day. It's like, there's nothing more valued than this. To be a student of the scriptures, to know them, to ingest them, to have them memorized. This is the best of the best. And so what we see in Jesus's life is that he takes up a pattern of life. This comes through most clearly really in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most Jewish of our Gospels, but we see Jesus taking up this life of studying the scriptures and of training up disciples to be like him. Anne Spangler and Lois Tverberg, in their book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, write this, Jesus lived in the midst of a golden age of study that provided the germinating seeds of Jewish thought today. Two of its founding thinkers, Hillel and Shammai, were teaching immediately prior to Jesus' time between 30 BC and AD 10. Many of the debates between the disciples of Hillel and Shammai are preserved in the Mishnah, and more than once was Jesus asked to comment on the rulings. For example, if you get into the stories about what, are your, what do you think about divorce? Do you believe in divorce for any cause? We read that not knowing about these teachings and we think, do you believe that it's okay to be divorced for any old reason? But actually any cause divorce was a debate between the Hillel and the Shammai school. And they're asking, what's your ruling on this? Can a husband drop his wife for any cause? or are there legitimate and illegitimate causes? They're inviting Jesus to actually wade into an ongoing debate. And if we don't know the context, we actually read that text in really unhelpful ways. So the Mishnah and the Talmud, the other texts of that time, they give us this window into the debates of Jesus's day. And often what we, what we see in Jesus and this interaction with the other teachers of the day, we see this rabbi engaged in these debates over how do you rule on these other takes as you have competing takes among the rabbis with authority. This is the context in which Jesus is walking around and teaching and gathering disciples to himself. And this is the context in which we see these 12 chosen from among the larger group. Now, who were these 12? And what does it mean that Jesus called them to follow him? Well, in order to understand that, we have to have a little bit of a sense of like, what was the educational system of the day? Because we know a lot of these followers of Jesus were fishermen, right? We have some fishermen in the mix. We have a tax collector in the mix. We have at least one zealot in the mix. We'll talk about what that means. But were these illiterate, uneducated guys that couldn't hold their own intellectually or academically? There are a couple of passages in John, maybe in John 7 and Luke 2 that might imply something like that. Or when you get to Paul and he's talking about not coming with eloquence or words of wisdom, right? We can infer maybe that the disciples were kind of um, an uncouth bunch, maybe an uneducated bunch. But that's probably far, far, far from what's actually true. Because in reality, these guys grew up in a society where education and the education of children was primary. If you read the historian Josephus, he says, above all, we pride ourselves. He's a a Jewish historian writing uh, right around the time of Jesus. He says, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children and regard as the most essential task in life, the observance of our laws and of the pious practices based thereupon, which we've inherited which is really fascinating. And if you read the works of some of these folks who study uh, education in Jesus's day, what you'll get is this picture of an education system that's actually quite robust. And in the places where these disciples are coming from in Galilee, near the town of Capernaum or Chorazin, these other places that are nearby, this is a profoundly Jewish area with big synagogues and big synagogue schools. And it was the Northern hub of Jewish religious education at the time. And these fishermen wouldn't have just started fishing from their youth with their fathers. Before they joined the family business, they would have gone to synagogue school. The Mishnah itself, back to that book, says at five years of age, one is ready for the study of written Torah. At 10 years of age for the study of oral Torah, that's Mishnah at 13 for bar mitzvah, at 15 for pursuing a vocation, at 18 for marriage, at 20 for pursuing a vocation, at 30 for pursuing one's full vigor. How old was Jesus when he came on the scene as a rabbi? 30 with full vigor, right? In their system, home, not school, was the center of education, but they had some really good schools as well. So at age five, The boys and girls together would have gone to what was called Beit Sefer, school of the book, where they would have studied Torah. It would have been taught by a Torah teacher. They would have focused on a few of the Psalms, 113 to 118. They would have learned by memorization and they would have learned to hide God's word in their heart through memory and meditation. Then once they were about 10, the girls would go home and spend time with their mothers, learning how to, do, how to care for the home and, um, and do all of that domestic work. The boys would either go on or not. So the boys who could advance would and would continue in school. The boys who couldn't would then go home and join the family business. The boys who would go on would go to the next level of education, which would be something called either Beit Talmud or Beit Midrash, some debate over whether there were two or three levels of schooling. But that second or intermediate age would have been from 10 to 13, boys only. They would have been taught by a Torah teacher. They would have engaged and memorized the rest of scripture. So massive chunks of the Hebrew Bible in their brains. They would begin learning the oral Torah, the the Mishnah, right? They would begin learning the art of asking good questions, which was how they understood, are you really learning? Not, can I give you an exam and can you tell me back all of the answers, but can you ask a question back of me that shows me that you've understood what I said, that you are tracking, and that you're capable of carrying the conversation further. After age 13, if they could keep going on up to the age of about 15, they would, begun, they would begin leading, um, re- learning to, um, or they would be studying the rabbinical legal decision. So this is like getting into the, the more complex, the more specific, and that's when they would have learned how to debate with teachers. So if you get all the way through that and you're at age like 15 or 16 or so, and you've completed all of those stages and you've probably memorized what we would call the Old Testament at this point, hard for us to even fathom that kind of memory. But if you've gotten all the way to that point by age 15 or 16, then you had the opportunity to go and seek out a rabbi and potentially become a disciple. But the way that would work if you were kind of a hotshot up-and-comer young boy is that you would go to a rabbi that you identify as someone that you would want to follow And to follow a rabbi means to hope to become like that person. And you would go to the rabbi and you would say, may I be your disciple? Will you accept me? And they would have a series of questions for you. There'd be an interview. They would want to know that you have what it takes to become like him. For a rabbi to take on a disciple would be a a supreme vote of confidence in the disciple's ability to become like the rabbi. In our society today, it's probably most similar to like a PhD program where you you see a scholar and you're like, I would like for that person to be my advisor. And then you fight to get one of those coveted few spots and the competition is fierce. That's how it worked. Now, not every single rabbi could have a band of disciples. Some some would um, simply be teachers and scribes of the law. That was sort of like your common rabbi, but there were rabbis with authority and they got this authority through an ordination ceremony in which another rabbi with authority had to actually confer by the laying on of hands, authority to another rabbi. And at Jesus's time, it is estimated there were about 35 to 60 of these rabbis with authority in Israel. Not a huge number, right? You would have known who these people are. And so to go to a rabbi with authority and say, may I be one of your disciples, you're talking about a really select group. A really select group. It's, it's tough to get in. So when we see Jesus come on the scene, and if you read in the other gospels or if you read in earlier stories, you you all know the stories, right? Of Jesus walking along the side of the lake and he sees Simon and his brother Andrew and they're fishing and he says, come and follow me. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Or you go through the other stories of how Jesus gets his disciples. Jesus seeks them out. And he says to them, follow me. And he says to them, follow me while they're doing what? What? The family business. These are guys that didn't make it all the way through, right? Except for maybe John. It's hard to say. It's possible John was actually a disciple of another rabbi. He's possibly the youngest and the most gifted, but that's another thing for another time. But the rest of the disciples, they're kind of doing something else, whether it's fishing in the lake or they're aspiring to whatever other kind of vocation, or in Matthew's case, Uh, the rather unholy vocation of working for the empire and levying taxes on his own people. But Jesus visits these guys and says, follow me. This is not how it works. But you can imagine being one of those guys in the boat. If it's true that to be uh, a sage is the most desirable of all vocations. If to be a disciple of a rabbi, a, a rabbi in training, which is what a disciple is, is the highest of the high. You can imagine if you're there fishing in your boats that to have a rabbi with authority come along and say, follow me is like, are you kidding me? I'm there. Now, it doesn't mean that was easy. They left their nets, they followed him. They walked away from their worldly trade. But you can see how this situation, you can see how this context reshapes a little bit of what we understand about what's going on here when Jesus calls these disciples. And the relationship of a rabbi to a disciple was not as much teacher-student as it was father-son. The rabbi was raising these disciples as spiritual children, which is why, as you see, like for example, Elijah and Elisha, when Elijah goes up and Elisha's there, he's not saying, my mentor, my mentor. He says, my father, my father. But when you see Paul writing to Timothy, my son, my son, Timothy. This is a rabbi-disciple relationship. It's a father-son relationship. And the rabbi takes on this disciple, this apprentice, this son, when the disciple is usually in the mid-teens and raises them until about age 30, at which point they're old enough to, come, to become a rabbi themselves. himself. If, if he's caught what the rabbi has given him to catch. I use the word caught very intentionally because, as I've said, the point of being a disciple to a rabbi is not to learn what the rabbi knows as much as it is to become what the rabbi is. And that is a process that is more caught than taught over a long life together of doing kind of all of life or most of life together as this community of disciples follows the rabbi all over the place, wherever he goes, they go. And so there's this saying of having the dust of the rabbi covering you, which is the idea of like being in in the dusty wake of the rabbi's feet so close that the dust is kicking up on you. My family and I had the privilege of driving ATVs in the high desert of Idaho a few weeks ago, which was awesome. We had a great vacation, great rest. This was the day my daughter broke her arm before that and her arm injury is not related to ATV driving. But we drove through the desert and it's like these things kick up so much dust. We're wearing ski goggles and we're going, you know, we're racing through, it was awesome. But it's just like the dust is just covering us because we're in the wake of these vehicles. Now these things are, the tires are enormous and the the road is dusty. And so they kick up this huge cloud where if you're like within a quarter mile of the thing you're probably going to get covered and it's dust but that's not true of human beings walking around. To be covered in the dust of another person's feet requires that you are following very, very closely. You are tailgating the rabbi. There's another saying of nose to the shoulder blades. The rabbi's shoulder blades, you are nose to the shoulder blades, and you are following. When the rabbi sits, you sit. When the rabbi stands, you stand. When the rabbi goes, you go. The rabbi stays, you stay. And after 15 or so years of this, a disciple might be ready to become a rabbi himself. This is the context of discipleship in Jesus's day. This is the kind of life Jesus calls these disciples into when he says to them, come and follow me. As we think about what we ourselves mean, or need to understand or need to inhabit even as we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, this is really, really important stuff. Because I don't know about you, many of you grew up in the church, probably most of you grew up in the church, I didn't. And so often my ears are a little bit not tuned, if you will, to the Christian lingo or the connotations. And so I say discipleship, you probably hear all kinds of stuff. Much of it, I don't mean to convey. But if you've grown up in the church, you likely have some some connotation. When you hear the word discipleship, that means something to you. Maybe you were part of a discipleship group. Maybe you had a discipler. Maybe that's about a Bible study or a particular program or some version of discipleship you've gone through. And many of those things are, are very, very helpful. And please don't hear me say anything against any of those. But the point of discipleship, as Jesus is talking about it, is to be a follower of Jesus in such a way that your nose is to his shoulder blades and the dust of his feet is covering you. That you're following so closely that you're mimicking him. That you're not just listening to what he says, but you're doing what he does. And that over the long haul of him rubbing off on you in this close relational proximity, that you then sort of attain a kind of maturity where you're just a lot like him. And of course, none of us ever becomes enough like him. You know, every one of us lives inconsistently. Every one of us is a sinful person who just needs to become more and more honest about all the ways that we do live away from God and against one another in these broken ways. That will always be true with us until we die and are raised and made new with him. But the invitation to be a disciple, the invitation to follow is an invitation to be transformed. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to follow, to listen, to learn, to be part of the community that is traveling in his wake, is to be with him. And at the end of the day, it's to be a copycat of him. Supposed to be copycats of Jesus, there's a reason the apostle Paul writes and says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's like I'm mimicking him as a disciple and I'm living in such a way that I'm offering myself to you as an illustration, not a perfect one, but hopefully a helpful one to help lead you further and further into life with God. And Jesus in the gospel of John says, "'If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples.'" And so the picture that we get of Jesus, what is it that he's come to do? And of course he's come to save us from our sins. Of course he's come to die in our place. Of course he has come to rise from the dead and to overthrow the reign of evil and sin and to lead us into the way of life everlasting. But at the same time, for you and for me, that being joined to Jesus, that turning from whatever other sage we're primarily following and unto following him, that turning is the beginning, not the end. It's the beginning of transformation, the beginning of a life of discipleship. And that life of discipleship will continue forever. So let's get back to our story we see in the Gospel of Luke, we see these events. Jesus calling his disciples to himself, he chooses 12 of them whom he also named apostles. What is he doing? Well, a disciple, as we've already seen, is like a rabbi in training, right? A disciple is one who's following, who's training to become like the person. Well, from that group of disciples, there's a time where he's got like 70 of them. By the time we get to the book of Acts, you see there are about 120 of them. But from that group, however big it was at this moment in Luke six, it's bigger than this group. Jesus chooses 12 of them and names them specifically to be apostles. What is an apostle? Well, an apostle is an authorized representative. A disciple is a rabbi in training. An apostle is a sent one who's commissioned, who's authorized, who's given authority to represent the sender. But if we're gonna understand what's happening here, we need to understand what Jesus does right before it. Immediately before we see in verse 12, he prays. Jesus spends all night, in prayer. And then he comes out of the prayer time, not only with the idea to set apart apostles, but with this sense of calling 12 and with the names of these individuals. Luke is wanting us to see that all of these things, the concept of apostleship, the number 12, and the names of these individuals are flowing out of the will of God that Jesus accesses in his time of prayer. But even before this moment of prayer, there's something else that's really important that happens. We didn't read it, but it comes just before this in Luke chapter six. The religious leaders are confronting Jesus about what they perceive as inappropriate or even unlawful activity on the Sabbath. In one scene, Jesus' disciples are plucking grain and another, Jesus heals the withered hand of a suffering man. And in both cases, the Pharisees who are like the religious leaders, the authorized teachers, they're challenging the legality of Jesus's actions. As they understand the law, these types of things, even the healing of a withered man, of a withered hand, these are not permitted by Torah. And the crux of the debate really is, okay, who is it who has authority to interpret and apply the scriptures? Remember, we're talking about rabbis with authority. There are like 35 to 60 of them estimated at this time. And Jesus, as he's doing his thing, is acting as a rabbi with authority who is allowed to insert new interpretations into the mix and not simply follow and repeat what's been written before. And so the Pharisees are challenging him. And by the end, if you get to the Gospel of Matthew, they'll they'll actually even specifically spell it out. By whose authority are you doing these things? Like, who is the rabbi with authority who ordained you? Because we want to go find him and ask, why the heck did he set you apart for this work? You're a problem. And Jesus, because obviously the mark of a good student is not in the answers that you give, but in the questions that you ask, turns it right around on them and says, well, what do you think about John and his baptism? By whose authority is he doing those things? And immediately they're in a trap because if they say his authority comes from, from human beings, well, they've already deemed him to be a prophet and you got all these people who view John in high esteem. But if you say that he's from God, what are you saying then about Jesus? Because John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And what Jesus implies in that moment is that his authority, the, the laying on of hands that happened to him by which the authority was conferred to him was not in the realm of religious tradition going back to Moses, but it was actually by God himself who when the heavens opened and the dove descended and the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, Listen to him. God vested upon Jesus the authority to be the teacher who interprets the scriptures in such a way that the will of God is made known to his disciples. And this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees is the backdrop of Jesus naming the 12. Who knows and represents God's will? Is it the religious establishment of the day or is it this one who has come, who is sent by God? And throughout the gospel story, Jesus repeatedly demonstrates that the religious leaders of the day have missed what's most important. They've missed God's saving purposes. They've missed the whole thing to which the law points. They missed the forest through the trees. And Jesus himself introduces his whole ministry back in John 4, right? By saying today is that day of God's promise and deliverance. Today it is fulfilled in your hearing. And for the, the problem with the Pharisees, the problem with the religious leaders is despite all of their learning, despite all of their study, and despite the fact that the answer to all their longings was standing right in front of them, the yes and amen to all their hopes, they couldn't see it. And they perceived Jesus to be a threat when in fact he is the Lord himself. And so the fact that this conflict with the Pharisees immediately precedes Jesus' nighttime prayer retreat and then his choosing of the 12, it's important because Luke wants us to see Jesus appointing of the 12 as a kind of judgment against the religious establishment for their lack of insight to see the will of God and their lack of compassion to those in need. What Jesus is doing by the authority of God is he's firing the old guard. He's firing the establishment and he's establishing new leadership. Through Jesus, the foundation of this people who will carry the torch and carry the promise of God to the world will no longer be built upon the foundation of the 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes, but will be built on the foundation of a new 12. It's gonna be a new people, reconstituted, organized around Jesus and he's laying a foundation right there in their midst. And the next thing that he does is demonstrate his authority in verse 19, for power came out from him and he healed all of them. He has an authority that's unlike anyone else's. He teaches with an authority that is unlike anyone else's. He leads into a kind of flourishing and thriving that is unlike what any other leading light or sage can do. All credit to Warren Buffett and Marie Kondo and whatever else, whoever else, all the people with all the wisdom, great. Read the books, find the help, whatever. That is not life. And if we find inside of our hearts a competing, will I be like Jesus or will I be like this? Will I be like Jesus or will I be like this person I admire who's living more comfortably than Jesus, but is pretty good? The invitation is to turn and put the nose to the shoulder blades of the rabbi, to follow me. When a disciple followed a rabbi, they would take upon themselves the rabbi's yoke. The yoke is the image of that wooden thing that goes over two animals, right? Where they carry a, they they pull a plow or they pull something else that's heavy. And Jesus makes use of this metaphor in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's parroting the words of the prophet Isaiah. He's echoing the words of Moses. He's pulling from all kinds of things that are the tips of icebergs that run throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And he's pulling them to himself. And he's saying, my yoke is the one you need. And the good news for you is it is easy. It is light because God is love and God's way is love. The invitation to you and me, as we think about how to pull this to our lives is what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to say yes when he says, follow me? Because the invitation to follow him is something that he didn't just speak back then to these people, but it's something that by his spirit and through the living proclamation of his saints today, he's speaking forth to us, to every single one of us. And he's saying to individuals, come and follow me. Come discover what life is. Come discover what love is. Come be part of the thing that I'm building What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? Well, the band of disciples that he pulled together and the group of 12 that he assembled is an edgy group because in it, you'll find a tax collector who if you're a fisherman at the north edge of Galilee There is no one worse. There is no one more problematic. There is no one more cancelable, no one less worthy of your fellowship than that guy. He's all that's wrong because he's one of our own who's betrayed us to take up life with the empire that is the enemy that is extorting us. And he's getting rich by breaking our backs. And on the other hand, this band has a zealot, Simon, Maybe two, their connections with the word Iscariot and the zealots, not sure. But the zealots were those who were like the other side of it, right? If the, if the, if the empire sympathizers, the Herodians, were, you wanna call them the far left, the zealots were the far right. These were the guys that were gonna lead the revolution by violence and get the enemy out of here They lived in the hills with daggers. They came down, they did assassinations. They were gonna lead up the rebellion. They were gonna overthrow Rome and they were gonna make sure to purify the people so that finally Israel would be what it was always supposed to be. And you have fishermen who are the ones who are suffering under the weight of this tax. Gritty, hardworking people who are just getting bled by the empire. And Jesus gathers this group and he's like, all right, this is my twelve. It's like Tea Party and Occupy and everyone in between all together, right? It's like, it's like BLM and the Newsmax folks coming together to be part of one group of 12, that's about some other mission that's bigger and better and more beautiful, transcendent, a mission of justice and beauty and wholeness that the world's longing for and needs. And Jesus finds everyone to be problematic and yet no one to be too problematic to be part of his team. And he calls them to himself and he changes their lives and he makes them one and he deploys them on mission. And then when he's risen from the dead and he gathers them up at the mountain, he says, go make disciples, baptizing baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He confers his heavenly authority on his followers and he sends his spirit, he sends it upon us, he makes us one, he sends us into the world, and he says, I'm with you. Go into your workplaces, go into your neighborhoods, go into your families, repent of your sins, embrace your neighbors, listen to those who are hurting, have compassion on the person on the sidewalk, go and be like me, because that is what life is about. You belong to a creator who's designed you to thrive. It's not up to you to figure it out. He's pioneered the way for you. And he's invited you to put nose to the shoulder blades, to be covered in the dust of his heels, to abide in him and to become like him. And that's not a guilt-inducing invitation. Not one of us is nearly like him in a way where you're thrilled to be near to me, right? We are all complicated, we're all problematic. But the hope, the invitation and the promise is that he's making all things new, that he's carrying to completion, the good work that he's begun and that you get to be part of it. And so does your neighbor. May God give us grace to be overwhelmed in a good way by this invitation to follow him. And may we put our nose to Jesus' shoulder blades and follow him. Would you pray with me? God of grace, we love you and we thank you that you are a pursuing and loving God who doesn't consider our applications and measure us according to our holiness or our worthiness to be included in your community, but rather you call us to yourself simply because you call us. We love because you first loved us. God, would you work in us mightily today, in this week and in the weeks to come. Renew us in your presence, Renew us in your love. Help us to actually inhabit humbly, faithfully, and boldly the authority and the power that you've vested in your people as the spirit-filled body of Christ in the world. And help us by your grace to rise to the occasion of loving you and loving neighbor everywhere that we go. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.